You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see so many folks have come out to hear this exciting presentation. David K. Johnson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and the best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. He's the founder and editor of DCReport.org and has been a frequent guest on MSNBC, CNN, the BBC, ABC World News Tonight, Democracy Now!, and NPR's Morning Edition, among other shows. Mr. Johnston first met Donald Trump in 1988 and has tracked him ever since. He wrote about Mr. Trump in two books, Temples of Chance and The Making of Donald Trump, and he was also an uncredited source of documents and insight for major campaign reports by The Washington Post, New York Times, and Network Television. When Mr. Trump announced his campaign in June 2015, Johnston was the first national journalist to write about a potential Trump presidency. So it's a delight for me to introduce to you David K. Johnston. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, very much. I'm going to... try and tell you why you want to buy my book tonight. I'm here to sell books. I'll be straight up. That's how I make my living. And I've got another book coming next year. I've got a finance called The Prosperity Tax, an entirely new federal tax system for the 21st century. Um, What I want to talk to you about is what you're not generally hearing in the news. And that is what is being done to our government by the Trump administration. There's a lot of coverage every day of the palace intrigues, of the crazy racist things Donald Trump says. As I was walking here, by the way, I was coming down the hall looking at the signs, and I'm going to the African-American department, it says H.L. Macon. I kept thinking, no, they can't have named a room in the African-American section for H.L. Macon. <laughs> Fortunately, it's, it's over there where it belongs on the side. And... So when, when, uh, when Donald won the Electoral College, notice how I word that? When Donald won the Electoral College, uh, I immediately said, well, my friends and I need to get together and start covering what Donald does, not what he says. One of the first things I learned about Donald when we met in 1988 was that he'll say almost anything. He'll say crazy, wild things, And he can always find journalists who don't care about the facts and want a good story because they have an outlet called the New York Post. (laughs) And I was very concerned that the coverage of him would be as bad as it was during the campaign. And those of you who read my earlier book, The Making of Donald Trump, know that Donald Trump has been a criminal his whole life. Many successful criminals are never arrested and never indicted. I once had in my home in Los Angeles when I worked for the LA Times the mob's number two hitman in the western U.S., bouncing my then uh, child in diapers, number seven kid, on his knee while I made coffee, and he told me about all the people he'd whacked. And the cops and the, the FBI backed up every story he told me. Public records backed it all up. 
And one of the things Harry was most proud of is he'd never been arrested. He said, I'm really good at what I do. Why would I want to be arrested? Well, Donald is like that. I mean, Donald was deeply entangled with a major international cocaine trafficker in ways that I show make absolutely no sense, unless they were in business together. In which case, everything he does now makes, suddenly makes perfect sense. Ditto his, his comments about Vladimir Putin. I've read lots and lots and lots of transcripts of mob soldiers who don't know they're under surveillance. And the way they talk about their boss, it's exactly the way Donald Trump talks about Vladimir Putin. He just has a little better education than they do. Now, when Donald took the oath of office, my concern was not the crazy things that he would do, the erratic behavior. I predicted he'd do a bunch of things, and he's pretty much followed the script I expected. It was what would happen to our government. And that's very important, the way I put that. It's what we use at DC Report. Newspapers and TV and politicians talk about the government, like it's a power onto itself. It's our government. It's our constitution. We own it, and we need to behave like owners. So what did Donald do? The very first thing after that crazy opening speech, inaugural address, that told you this was a kleptocracy in the making. Well, the beast, that's what they call the you know, 80,000 pound, whatever it weighs, presidential limousine, comes up toward the White House and it stops and the family gets out, takes a two minute turn on the street. The camera sits totally fixed. And all the television networks just report they get out and walk without telling you where they were. So where did they stop the beast? Right in front of the Trump International Hotel, Washington. The old post office building, which was the project of an equally corrupt politician, Leland Stanford. Now, even if they had pointed this out, I don't think most Americans would have seen the significance in this. But if you're a lobbyist, if you're a diplomat for a foreign government, if you're the, an executive of a company that depends on Washington for its revenue and for its profits, you got the message. You want favors from the Trump administration, you will pay tribute. And the Trump administration expected that that hotel, I mean the Trump organization, expected that hotel was going to lose money. It is making gangbuster profits. The bar is taking in $83,000 a night. Anybody here ever owned a bar? <laughs> How would you like to take in $83,000 a night? And that's just the drinks. I'm not counting the $60 and up stakes. Now, the framers of our Constitution, not the founders of the country, the framers of our Constitution, were very concerned about a lot of things. They were concerned about mob rule, they had studied their Greek history, and they were worried about the passions of the people getting out of hand. That's why they created the Electoral College. Its purpose was that if people became zealous and put an incompetent toward the White House, the Electoral College was supposed to act as a circuit breaker and deny the presidency to that kind of a person. Our Constitution has atrophied because the Electoral College didn't do its job. Well, this administration, right off, began doing what Steve Bannon said they would do. Steve Bannon said, I am a Leninist. 
And what did Lenin do? He has destroyed the existing order. That's not a defense of the existing order. It's just what they did. And he said, I'm here to destroy the existing order. We are going to destroy the administrative state, by which they mean the ability of the government to do the things that make your life possible, that mean you don't have to worry about getting killed if you open a can of tuna. You don't have to worry about unsafe vehicles on the road that suddenly smash into yours and wipe out your grandchildren, given that so many of these people of you in this room, like me, have gray hair. Uh, I suspect there aren't many children directly. And what I set out to do was to examine what's going on. Now, the fastest disappearing job in America in this century is journalist. Forty percent of all journalism jobs in America that existed at the turn of the century no longer exist in America. Back in the 1970s, when I was a national correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, I literally got chewed out for flying coach. Today, you have a hard time getting bus fare to go across town. <laughs> Things have really changed. And we do a pretty good job, better than I expected, in the National Press Corps of covering the White House. Donald's craziness, his racism, the palace intrigues that Michael um, Wolf wrote about in Fire and Fury, a book which I would argue just confirms everything that was in the making of Donald Trump, so much so that one of my eight children called me up and said, Dad, I just read that book. Do you think he went through yours and just picked out questions from it? <laughs> well, what we don't do is cover the government. Journalists have never been especially good at covering the government. Uh, maybe city councils and towns where there are big issues, but not the, not the federal agencies. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. You've all heard of that, right? You think about it all the time. It affects your pocketbook every single month. There hasn't been a mainstream reporter covering FERC in decades. It's one of the things I write about because it affects people's pocketbooks. And what did Donald Trump do almost immediately upon taking office? He signaled to Wall Street. Remember, he ran against Wall Street. That they were going to allow manipulate, more manipulations of the electricity markets. They were going to look the other way. They were going to be sightless sheriffs. And that's what we began to see happen, is more manipulation of the electricity markets where many of the power plants in this country are no longer owned by utilities like Baltimore Gas and Electric. They're owned by Wall Street. And they have found ways, and I've written about them in previous books, to manipulate markets to just push up your electricity prices and how they do it. It's one of the very first things they did. And bit by bit, this administration has been working to do the exact opposite of what they said. Now, I can say this to you with absolute confidence for a very simple reason. Donald Trump's economic platform, not his racism, but his economic platform, can be found in a best-selling trilogy of books that I wrote. Perfectly Legal, a book that John Kerry stopped his campaign for president for a weekend to read, announced that, deemed not to be news by the New York Times and the Washington Post, and probably the reason he lost. <laughs> Free lunch, that's about all the subsidies. That's where people learn that Walmart builds its, its new stores with your tax dollars, and General Electric in Ohio taxes its workers legally. They don't even know it. Their tax dollars don't go to the government. They go to General Electric, and that's how General Electric rebuilt its plant there. And the fine print, which is about restraint of trade and monopolies. Donald didn't read my books. Donald doesn't read books. 
but I know from things he told people in between us that he watched me on television. And he distilled out of my books the basic essence of them, which was the government in Washington has become captive to the wealthiest people in America. It is working against the interests of the common man. The reason your income hasn't gone up is rules and regulations and laws that are in my three books that I spent years digging out of the public record that hardly anybody knew about except the people who get rich off them. And Donald distilled that down to drain the swamp. I alone can save you. We're going to stop Goldman Sachs. We're going to stop the predators on Wall Street. And what did he do when he took office? He went to Washington, D.C. to drain the swamp. He turned it into a federally protected paradise for Goldman Sachs. Six top Goldman Sachs people in his administration. Donald also said in September of 2015, more than a year before the election, I have this tax plan. It's been the best experts. The very best experts have gone over it. It's the, you know, I really know taxes. No one in the world knows more about taxes than I do. Well, he comes into office and there's no bill. At least George W. Bush had a bill four or five days after he took office. And finally, uh, tax day comes around back in April. And they put forth a 100-word tax reform plan or what I call the Goldman Sachs shopping list. <laughs> we get to August. They put out an eight-page plan plus a cover. Although if any of my law or graduate business students at Syracuse had ever given me that paper, I would have said, that's really three pages of material. Go back and rewrite it and put some substance in it. But it was an extended shopping list for Goldman Sachs. Donald said, if you're a married couple, you're not going to pay taxes on your first $50,000. That sounds pretty good. Well, the bill made it $24,000, less than half that much. And by the way, before the bill, you didn't pay anything on your first $20,700. So you got crumbs. That's what you got. Now, Donald is not really the core of what's happening to our government that's affecting you. Donald is a lazy guy. He's always been a lazy guy. He works, we've now learned, about five hours a day, and that doesn't count lunch. He spends a third of his days at his properties, even though on the campaign trail he said, I'm never going to leave the White House. There's so much to do. Why would anybody ever leave the White House? I'm not going to play golf for four years. He's playing more golf than Tiger Woods <laughs> and taking more mulligans than everybody else in America. So let's look at some of the things they've done you may not have heard of. Sleep apnea. I have sleep apnea. Lots of people have sleep apnea. It is a condition in which you don't sleep correctly. Your breathing is obstructed. And the way you know you have it is you're driving down the road one day as I was, and you suddenly go, ah, there's a 15-wheeler coming at you. Well, we've had horrific accidents from train conductors truck drivers and bus drivers who didn't know they had sleep apnea, who fell asleep. They're not bad people. They have an illness. They didn't know they had it. It wasn't diagnosed. We had that terrible accident in Philadelphia. We had the one on the, on the um, railroad, the um, Metro North in New York. We've had truck accidents. We've had, you know, children and school buses all killed by accidents like this. So the Obama administration proposed a rule the same basic rule we apply to airline pilots. Don't worry, no problem with airline pilots and sleep apnea. We test them and require if they have it that they be treated. 
They don't lose their jobs, just have to be treated. It's real easy. Trump comes in, they kill the rule. Excessive regulation. Well, now think about that. You are literally at risk of dying because of what Donald Trump has done here in eliminating this rule on sleep apnea. And by the way, the rule should have had a, a provision in it that if you are a truck driver, you don't pay for the test. The government pays for it if you're not employed, and if you're employed, your employer pays for it. Problem we wouldn't have if we had national health insurance. So let me go to national health insurance. Donald Trump told me back in 1988-89 one day when we were talking, I said, Donald, what do you think about health insurance? Health care should be like the road. When you need it, you just use it. And I said, so like, should you pay money? You just should go to the doctor and you're treated. That's it. And he and I talked about how this would reduce burdens on small business owners. And as the founder of a co-founder of a small business, $2 million a year company, it's not a big deal, with 25 employees, it was none of my business who my employees sleep with, what religion they do or don't have, what color their skin is, what cars they drive, but by God, their health status was my business. And it took up enormous amounts of time that diverted from the business. Now, Donald Trump says when a bill is put forth that would take health care away from one in 10 Americans, 31 million people, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's so beautiful, it's a beautiful health care bill. Now, that should tell most people he doesn't know what he's talking about. But as a general rule, journalists don't act on their own authority, and they don't so much point that out. They'll do a little more on MSNBC and CNN, but if you turn to Fox, it's a beautiful bill. It's really great. It's what we need. Donald says he's the champion of the veterans, the grandson of a German draft dodger and he, himself a draft dodger, who says, I know more about the ISIS than the generals. I'm really good at war. And also said, of course we're going to use nukes. And I point out to you that the White House press office one day chastised reporters in the White House briefing room saying, you don't seem to understand what we're doing. We will fulfill every single campaign promise. Which is why you see Donald Trump trying to get into an argument over whose button is bigger. And just 10 days ago, we learned that they are, have ordered the Pentagon to review loosening up the rules on the use of tactical nuclear weapons. That's a nuclear weapon that will take out this building and the church across the street, but not Baltimore. That would be a strategic nuclear weapon. And they're looking at doing it to stop cyber attacks, which go on every single day by all sorts of governments around the world. Well, <clears throat> while championing veterans, the Trump administration's first budget had the following proposal. If you're a 100% disabled veteran, like my dad from World War II, when you reach retirement age, we're going to cut your benefits to what you would get with Social Security filling in the difference. So if you were getting $35,000 a year, boy, that's an enormous income. I mean, people are clearly getting rich off uh, being disabled veterans. Your income would fall to $13,000 a year, a nearly two-thirds cut. Have you heard about this in the news? No, hardly. If there, was, there were a few stories that mentioned it. If you follow, uh, but even many of the veterans publications didn't write about this. They also had another little interesting item. They wanted to round benefit checks to veterans down. Down. Not up, not neutrally, but down. It's not a lot of money. 
It's in my book how much it is. My memory right now says it's $12 million a year. Nothing in the American economy except the symbolism of why would you nickel and dime veterans. You know, you see Donald all the time saying, I love the police. I love the first responders. You know, the, the police and the firefighters. I'm their champion. So what did this tax bill do? It got rid of what are known as miscellaneous deductions. So if you're a police officer and you have to buy your own uniform, dry clean your own uniform, in many places you have to buy your own gun and ammunition, and you have union dues, you used to be able to deduct that as a cost of earning your income, as an offset to your income, the same way I in the business that my son and I set up could take the costs of running the business, like buying computers and other things, and write them off as a necessary cost of business. Took that away. He's the champion of police and firefighters? Excuse me? We have a terrible student loan problem in this country. And when I went to college, and I suspect many of you, college was free, or virtually free. I went to school in California. College was free. The only reason I have a college education, it was, it was free, because I could never have afforded to pay for college. Not the least, because when I was 23, I had five kids. And <clears throat> we have turned college education from an investment in brains that will make America better and wealthier in the future into a financial enterprise. So Trump appoints Betsy DeVos to be education secretary, somebody who went to private schools, has no background, was the champion and overseer in some ways of the Detroit charter school system, which is so awful that the charter school people, if you call them up and ask about traces, we talk about New Orleans or, or Newark or Rochester, New York, they don't want to talk about Detroit. And who does she bring in to deal with the student loan crisis? Two executives from the companies that created the problem. She's an investor in one of the companies that collects student debts. Now, given her multi-billion dollar fortune, it's an immaterial part of her money. But once again, it's the symbolism that it's the core of this. At the Environmental Protection Agency, where Scott Pruitt was appointed. Everybody knows Scott Pruitt wants to kill the EPA, wants to get rid of it. He's, by the way, really running for senator from Oklahoma or perhaps, uh, you know, senator from fossil fuel. <laughs> and what has he been doing? Well, if you're a manager of research scientists there, you were ordered to have your staff, and I tell the story through one person this happened to in my book, to develop extensive reports showing every single weakness in cases you can bring against polluters. You know, laws are the product of compromise, something you're not seeing in Washington these days, despite the uh, temporary renting of our government for three weeks uh, after the three-day shutdown. But laws aren't perfect, and so if you want to prosecute polluters, they're often not black and white. They're often loopholes and difficulties and hurdles you have to get over. So they ordered these people in department after department after department, first of all, to never come to the executive offices. They locked the doors to all the executive offices. The previous EPA administrators who would come by the woman whom I wrote about, and they'd stop in and say, hey, can we talk for a few minutes? I need to learn about this or that. Not at all. They locked the doors, and then they say, you will write us a report detailing every weakness in bringing 
cases, and they give them examples of what they want. I wonder where they got those, maybe from the fossil fuel industry. And then they take from them all these reports, and they never give a word back. Well, the only reason you would do that is because you're turning them over to the companies that pollute. Now, the reality is a lot of the things we benefit from in modern life pollute. And one of the reasons we aren't all, you know, <coughs> and have asthma and heart disease and more cancer than we do is Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, a Republican who signed the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and agreed to the EPA, Republican president. We're now seeing all of that undone and destroyed. Companies that burn coal, and boy, if there's anything Donald Trump has been promoting, it's coal. Even though there are more people who work at a third-rate fast food chain called Arby's than work in coal mining. Donald Trump has returned to the practice that when you burn coal and you have residue that's left, and it's full of heavy metals, it's toxic bad stuff, what traditionally was done is you soak it in water, you make it flow downhill, and you put it into a big pond, and typically these ponds were built because it was the lower place nearby, on the edge of rivers and streams. Well, you remember a couple of years ago in the south, one of these things, the dikes broke that nobody could drink the water for weeks, all the fish were killed, the plants were killed, the river will eventually restore itself, but it was a terrible disaster. There's a better technology. You dry the stuff out. It costs more money. Oh, we can't have that. that that's regulation. That's, that's regulation. We can't have that. So they're allowing this kind of conduct. How about your income and, <clears throat> and your future in employment? How many of you have heard of the, raise your hand, the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Okay, I was one of the most prominent, loud critics of the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it was simply negotiated by the companies that were going to benefit from it. It was done in secret, and when things leaked out, what we discovered was, and I know you'll be shocked to hear this, it reduced your rights as an individual and enhanced the rights of monopolists and corporations against you. So I thought it needed to be reformed. But it was also designed to contain China, to limit China's economic and military and political influence. Donald Trump comes into office. This is my wheelhouse, economy. I'm really good at the economy. I'm really good at the economy. And he kills the TPP. He doesn't replace it with anything. Now, how many of you who raised your hand before, raise your hand, know about the RCEP? I think I see two hands, three hands in the room, four. A handful of people. This is a terribly important issue that isn't being covered. It's the kind of thing that's in my book. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It's China, 14 other Pacific Rim countries, and India. And it's a free trade zone. I don't like, there's no such thing as free trade, but it is a regulated trade zone among these countries in the Pacific. We're not part of it. We're not included. I was in Australia back in October. I crazily flew 57,000 miles doing five continents on five Fridays lecturing about Trump and taxes. Different, two different sets of lectures. And in Australia, our most loyal ally, there is no country in the world that's been more of a lapdog to America than Australia. 
What was everybody there talking about? Government officials I met, professors, economists, bartenders, cab drivers, chambermaids. I tried to talk to a wide range of people here. They were all aware of that Australia is beginning to tilt economically toward Beijing because it makes sense for them to do so. And what are Chinese emissaries going around telling these specific countries? You need to pivot away from Washington. America is in decline. Look who's in their White House. Now look at our country. We're the country of the future. We have stable leadership. We're building infrastructure. And if you haven't driven on a Chinese highway, you have no idea what a highway can be like. The Autobahn is like old school. It's fantastic, the Chinese highways. They're saying to these countries, pivot toward us. And that's what they're doing because there's no leadership in Washington. If you go to the web page of the American Foreign Service Association, that's the private organization of people who are diplomats, it's really hard to get into that. Of all the people who applied to the State Department to become Foreign Service officers, about 3% eventually get hired. 3%. Very smart, very educated, very hardworking and dedicated people. Well, we don't have ambassadors in more than half the important countries in the world. Trump fired them all. And his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, well, Rex Tillerson was the CEO of a company in a very nasty business, oil. It's also, by the way, ExxonMobil is arguably the best managed company in the world. If, if you're looking at management theory, they're a model of how to manage a company. But they also have their own private military and their own private diplomatic corps. And if you were Rex Tillerson, what you saw going on during the years you were rising in the company and then leading it was the U.S. State Department saying to ExxonMobil, well, you can't do this, and you can't pay that bribe, and you can't hire this corrupt person's people onto your staff just to get a contract because it's against the law. And Rex Tillerson's been in there destroying our State Department. Think about how much money you have spent as a taxpayer to develop the expertise in our State Department. Now, Donald says we're worried about terrorism. You know, all despots want to tell you to constantly be worried about invading armies and, and terrorists. Well, how come we don't have an ambassador in Saudi Arabia? Or Egypt? Or Jordan? Or Libya? Or South Korea? Many countries around the world. We don't have an ambassador. And that means that things ambassadors would learn about that lower level people might not. Things ambassadors have been trained to notice like who sits where at the dinner table when there's a huge event? Or when the dictator's brother shows up with a different mistress? What does that mean? And those things can save lives. When business deals and big investments are being discussed, we're not at the table. Earlier <clears throat> last summer, Donald Trump went to, war went to Poland. He gave a speech, and if you saw the TV, he was surrounded by adoring people. The Polish people, they really love us. They really love us. What you didn't know was that the Polish government police and military kept anybody who was a protester so many blocks away that none of the TV cameras could get to him. And if you tried to move that direction and you were a news person, they stopped you. That's what you saw in the news. Here's what you didn't see. 800 miles to the west, Shinzo Abe, the leader of Japan, was signing a deal with the European Union to create a new trade agreement that will resort in enormous amounts of trade between Japan and Europe. Trade we won't be a part of. Trade that 
won't mean jobs for Americans. In fact, it's likely to mean the loss of jobs for Americans because the Japanese in particular in certain areas of manufacturing, even though their costs are as high as ours and sometimes higher, are now going to have this market readily available to them and not to us. Wilbur Ross, Donald Trump's Commerce Secretary. He goes with Donald Trump on his first overseas trip. They go to Riyadh and they meet with the leaders of all of the Sunni countries. And Donald Trump walks up into this meeting and praises the Saudis for leading the fight against terrorism. Anybody want to tell us who the biggest funder of terrorism in the world is? Saudis. He insults Qatar, the, the country, if you want to call it that, I think of it and Kuwait more as being family businesses posing as countries. But Qatar is the place where they haven't beheaded anybody now for, I think it's eight years, nine years. They started Al Jazeera News so that people in the Middle East didn't just have state-controlled news, which is a good part of what led to the Arab Spring. I used to write for Al Jazeera as a columnist. Um, they are the home to our biggest and most important Middle East base, Qatar. And Trump attacks the rulers, the ruler, the emir in Qatar. Well, Wilbur Ross comes back from this trip. He only goes to uh, Saudi Arabia. And he arrives in America, and he goes on CNBC. And he gets asked about what happened, and he speaks. And then he says, I've got to tell you something. The people in Saudi Arabia, they adore us. They love America. You know there was not a single protester anywhere. <laughs> and Becky Quick, the host, young as she is, I don't think she has a gray hair yet, says, uh, well, excuse me, but Mr. Secretary, it's against the law in Saudi Arabia to protest. Uh, they would arrest people and whip them and other things. She could bring herself to say behead. And what is Wilbur Ross's response? Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> Holy mackerel. The Commerce Secretary of the U.S. doesn't know anything about that. And then he digs down deeper and says, furthermore, I've got to tell you, the most wonderful thing happened when I was leaving. My Saudi guards, who took me everywhere while we were there, when we get ready to get on my government plane to go home, they bring me these two baskets of dates that were personal gifts from them. They were, what a heartfelt gift. It's a man who doesn't even know when he's being bribed by the government of Saudi Arabia. And he's our commerce secretary. Now, <clears throat> I used to teach the law of the ancient world. I'm not a lawyer, but I taught at law school for eight and a half years. I taught two courses the property and tax law of the ancient world, and the business regulatory law of the ancient world, which was really a way to teach modern law. How did we get to where we are? Why is the law the way it is today? What are the principle and theory underlying this? And the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, had a term for a government like the Trump administration. They called it a cacistocracy, a government by the worst among us, the most venal, the most awful. That's what we have. In the book, what I say is that the Trump administration has put political termites into the structure of our government, and they are in the process of doing what Steve Bannon promised they would do. They are destroying it. You usually don't notice termites until you put your floor through the, your foot through the floor, and then you find out you've got a horrific bill to rebuild your house, and you might even have to tear it down. So I want to take your questions, but what I want you to think about is 
We need, if we're going to have change in this country, if we're going to get back to making progress, if we're going to get back to having a better government, if we're going to recognize that, you know, we've had 44 previous presidents. We've had great presidents. We've had awful presidents. We've had smart ones. We've had dumb ones. We've had a murderous, racist president whose picture looks down on Donald Trump in the Oval Office and is still on our $20 bills instead of Harriet Tubman or Susan B. Anthony or Frederick Douglass. We've had presidents who were middling. We've never had a president whose whole presidency is about one thing, the glorification of the great leader. And Donald Trump now, as he begins season two of Trump, the political reality show, <laughs> has revealed that it's all a farce because he referred to the cabinet room the other day as the studio and talked about how his performance had gotten letters the day before, his performance the day before had produced letters from television news anchors praising his brilliant performance. Never mind that no television news anchor, even Fox, would write such a letter. But who ever heard of the post office getting a letter out in less than 24 hours? <laughs> Must be Donald's magic. He's making the post office more efficient. So long as we continue to focus on the palace intrigues, the racist comments, the crazy tweets, the, oh my God, what's he doing next? The stuff he did in the campaign when Donald Trump was the political equivalent of an automobile accident on the other side of the freeway, and we all admit it, we all slow down and look, we all rubberneck, except his was an auto accident with dancing girls, a marching band, and fireworks. We're going to miss what's happening to our democracy. And if we don't get lots of people to understand this, that you are being hurt, that your children are being hurt, that your safety driving down the highway, that your likelihood of your or your children or your grandchildren getting asthma and cancer and heart disease, that the quality of the education they're going to have, that the economic terms of trade that may determine whether you have a job even if you've never set foot in a factory in your life. After all, we export lots of services, not just goods. That's what we have to pay attention to. What's being done to our government? And I want to charge all of you with the idea that you're going to go get people to engage in that. And when they start talking about Don's latest tweet, you're going to cajole them and push them back to this. And you're going to be able to do it because you read my book. <laughs> all right? But the other thing I want you to do is you've got to get young people involved. I gave a talk recently to an audience like this, and I said, all right, I'm scheduled to come back here in a few months. And what I want the organizers to do is say, you get in free, or you get in for a half ticket or something. I don't know how you're going to work it out. But you can't get in the door if you don't bring a young person, which I define as you don't have gray hair. We've got to get young people to really understand this and get them involved. And we have to recognize that it's our government. It's our Constitution. And if we don't fix this, we won't continue to be free. We won't continue to be prosperous. But we will all, as Omarosa said, bend our knee to the great leader. Thank you. So we're going to ask questions. And yes, and Judy, my master here, uh, says a couple things. Stand up, talk loudly. If the question isn't clear, if anybody's here in the back, I'll repeat it. 
Most important thing is a lot of people want to ask questions. Ask a question. If you don't have a question, if you give a speech, I'm going to cut you off. Go to somebody else. I'll come back to you. So you got a question. Carol. Why is the press not covering these important aspects? Well, as I said during this talk, the fastest disappearing white-collar job in America in the last 18 years, I hope I said that, is journalists. 40% of those jobs have gone away. And so there aren't enough people. There's no money. Um, uh, and, and it's just not being covered, okay? Um, it's harder to cover. It's really easy to cover what politicians say. You want to cover what they do. You know, it's very easy to cover... The police announced something about a shooting. I used to cover the LAPD's management. You want to dissect shooting strategy and take it apart? Boy, you've got to read a lot of books and really learn about police tactics to be able to do that. It's just not, it's not going to change. But that doesn't mean the information isn't out there. I mean, I've got it in the book. More than enough ammunition to make the point. So who else? Back here, ma'am. Do you think Mueller will stand up? Do I think Mueller will get him? Robert Mueller, who was a valorous officer in Vietnam, the second longest serving FBI director under two different presidents, and a brilliant prosecutor. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump is a criminal, and he's yes. been a criminal his whole life. There's a big, long paper trail. Unless you are transferring money through something called the Hawala system in the Middle East, where I'm sure there are people here in Baltimore who are involved in it. You go down and say, here's... $10,000 to go to my mother in Kabul. They give you an identifier. You get that number to your mother. She goes to her Hawala guy in Kabul. He takes his fee and gives her the money. There's no record of a transaction. We can't trace that. Everything else goes through the banking system. The IRS people working with Mueller, they have literally found in the past $10,000 needles in the haystack of, I kid you not, multi-trillion dollar daily transfers of money across borders. So, are they going to get them? Yeah. Now, the question is, is anything going to happen? You really think that the, the report came out tomorrow, the Republicans are going to do anything? No? No. I don't think there's any chance of that. They've made their bed with him, and they're going to protect him. And by the way, here's one more thing for you that was the one chapter we took out of the book because my editors were convinced everybody knew this. We'll see if you do. If you go to the web and get the original email to Rob Goldstone, the one that Don Jr. said didn't exist, and then a year later... They came up with six different lies about it. You read down about the fourth paragraph. It says, as part of Russia's efforts to help. Now that isn't a, hi, would you like to go on a date with me? That's a, well, we've been sleeping together for quite a while. You want to try a new position? My wife is going to yell at me when she hears about that one. Way back. Actually, I'm a California transplanted, but that's okay. Okay, how do, how do people exercise their power? Okay. How do people exercise their power regarding Trump? But the central system, no, I'm saying power, corporate power You're getting way down in the weeds. So what's the question?
Right. And the man is at the mayor makes right. that ball safe. So your question is really about what tactics can you use to affect change? Well, economic tactics work. I mean, the bus boycott was terribly painful, and people think now it wasn't very long. It went on for months. But you know what? It worked. And you, we can certainly decide to organize people to inflict economic pain on various companies. I think a better strategy is get people to register to vote, check and minimize the voter suppression. It doesn't go on in every state, so that you don't have to be everywhere and get people on election day to those districts where change can happen to drive people to the polls. You know why Scott Walker is still governor of Wisconsin? Because the labor unions and the Democrats tried to outspend the Koch brothers on TV ads. Can you think of a dumber strategy than trying to outspend the Koch brothers? If they had taken all the money they put into television ads in Wisconsin to stop the recall of Scott Walker, and it simply said, hey, Joe, I know you're out of work, I know you got a station wagon. Come down to the voting place on Monday morning. We're going to give somebody to be with you because you always put two people in a car. We're going to fill your gas tank. At the end of the day, we'll refill it. We're going to give you 200 bucks in cash, and we want you to just drive whoever we tell you to to the polls. Scott Walker would not be the governor of Wisconsin. You want to change Congress. Well, districts where existing members of Congress run, they almost never get voted out. Everywhere there's an open seat, the Republican incumbent has decided, I may get voted out, and I don't want the humiliation. Turn out to vote. By the way, I'm a registered Republican, okay? I don't want you to think I'm arguing for the Democrats. I'm arguing for better government, for responsive government. Get people to vote. The march we had over the weekend, I'll tell you what was really important about it. I spoke to a whole group of women in New York City the two days before the march who were totally unaware of it. It wasn't sold in the media. It wasn't top-down. It was sold through peer-to-peer contact. And look at the size of the crowd that turned out. It wasn't quite a year ago, except in one or two cities. But look how many people turned out. It's your government. Take a roll, register to vote, get people to the polls. Okay, over here. Uh, ma'am, way back there. And then I'll do you, sir. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that there were all sorts of efforts to do things and we know them to the elections. But Donald Trump won the votes in those states. But he also won because of rules that almost nobody knows about. In Michigan, I used to cover the Michigan legislature 40-some years ago. Um, they passed a law that, you know, there's poll watchers. Some of you have probably been poll watchers. One Democrat, one Republican. In New York, we have four parties, so who knows how many you're going to have. And at the end of the day... They would add up the votes. And if one of the poll watchers said, well, I counted 399 votes, and the other one says, no, it's 400, you know what the response was to that under the law? You know, did you go recount? Did you check? No, you just throw out all 799 or 800 votes. Guess where almost all the votes thrown out occurred? Wayne County, i.e. Detroit. Saginaw County, i.e. Flint. None dare call that racism. Is it Genesee? I'm sure you're right. It's Genesee County. Saginaw's in Saginaw County. Thank you. Um, so, no, I don't. But I'm very worried that in our next election, we may have heavy hacking. And I think we should do what Canada does in most places. Let's just go back to paper ballots. Yes. 
You know, everybody goes, well, there's all these stories of corrupt sheriffs and things. Yeah, the way you have honest paper ballots is every cop car, we record the odometer, both parties certify it. We have GPS now. We can tell if you stopped and went to the, the, uh, the graveyard to switch out the ballots because GPS can track the cars. Let's go back to paper ballots. Uh, let me see, I said I would call this gentleman back here. Yes, sir. You're talking about his tax return. You're talking about his tax returns. All presidents' tax returns are sent, they're not audited, they're reviewed, are sent to the Internal Revenue Service. They are reviewed, I would not call it an audit, and they are put into the, there's a big vault, I've seen it, in the IRS Commissioner's office, and that's where they're put to keep them safe. Donald Trump's claim that he couldn't let us see his tax returns because he was under audit is absolute nonsense. Every time you get a tax return, you sign at the bottom what the lawyers call a jurat. You sign under penalty of perjury. Once you've signed it, nothing that happens after that can change what you sign. And Donald Trump, as I point out in the book, twice tried civilly for income tax fraud and lost both cases on devastating grounds. He's a tax cheat. And if we had a real audit of him, we would find out about it, and Mueller's team, I guarantee you, has his returns because it would be standard prosecutorial, prosecutorial practice, and Bob Mueller's as good as it gets. Yeah, follow up. Well, first of all, they don't know tax law. Okay, it's like when I got Donald's tax return last March, there were all sorts of journalists who said, there's nothing there. Well, that just told me they don't know anything about tax law. I don't expect most journalists to know about tax law, okay? I don't know anything about baseball. Right? If you sent me to a baseball game, I would write you a story where you'd say, well, the, the Orioles won by two, I don't know, what are they called? Runs. <laughs> That's the level of quality we got of the reporting on his tax return. But Mueller's stuff is going to have it. Um, Frazier. We don't have the range of newspapers we used to have. We don't have competing papers in one city anymore, with a few exceptions. Yep. Well, I have been highly, highly critical of my former newspaper, the New York Times. I was actually on a platform with the political director of the Times coverage, and I very carefully made it clear this wasn't personal to her, but I just ripped him apart for not telling people who Trump is. We're supposed to scrub the candidate. I mean, I can tell you, the, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I have read the names of Barack Obama's kindergarten playmates in Indonesia, the boys he smoked dope with when he was going to high school in Honolulu, and the women he was dating when he went to Columbia, at least some of the women he was dating. None of that was done with Donald Trump. The New York Times put Trump and mafia in the paper four times in the 16 months leading up to the election. They were all passing mentions. One of them was a Russ Dutat column in which he said, and then there's questions about Trump and the mafia. Nothing about the cocaine trafficker, the tax sheet, or anything else. They've been doing better since the election, but most Americans still don't have a clue. I get emails from people all the time about what a wonderful, great Christian man Donald Trump is. My favorite is from a woman who wrote to me, a woman who wrote to me from Indiana. Now that we finally have a fine Christian family man of integrity in the White House. And look, there was Franklin Graham the other day. You know, Stormy Daniels, I'm sure he's repented. He's a different man. And I, I, I have to tell you, somebody who's two years younger than Donald, I am so different from 10 years ago, you can't imagine. 
I have more gray hair and I weigh two pounds more. <laughs> Ma'am. Why do I always call Trump Donald? Well, I call Nancy Pelosi Nancy. When I covered the LA Police Department, I called the police chief Daryl, Daryl Gates. And I have a very simple reason for that. The President of the United States is my employee. He's my subordinate. We have temporarily imbued him with the authority to act in our name. If I knew Barack Obama, I'd call him Barack or Barry, depending on, I don't know what his friends use, okay? But this, I was invited once to speak to the House Democratic Caucus, which I agreed to do, provided that they made a serious effort to get the Republicans to invite me. They did. They persuaded me they'd done it. The Republicans declined. And I referred to the members saying, you know, you guys don't understand why the public is being estranged from you. And I repeatedly said, you guys. And Nancy Pelosi came up to me in her Christian Louboutin high heels and her $4,000 sheath dress so that you don't miss it at 80. She has the figure most women wish they had at 20. And she said, that was really disrespectful to call us, you guys. And I said, Nancy, I did that on purpose. You folks need to come down a notch. <laughs> and I mentioned her clothing, not to be sexist, but to think about the oddity of the head of the party of working people is, is like this. I don't have anything against money. I want people to be wealthy. I want lots of people to be wealthy. I just want you to earn it in the marketplace, which her husband did and she did. But, you know, really? This is who we're going to have? I mean, we don't have to have Michael Moore type dress. But how about something somewhat reasonably in between? Can you imagine Nancy Pelosi walking to a working class bar in Michigan with UAW members? You know, there's a, there's a total disconnect. So anyway, I call him Donald because he's our employee. And we need to respect the office. It's the office that we want to respect. But the person who's holding it, he's worthy of contempt. We should hold him in contempt. Sir. Yeah, um, I'd like for you to comment on the type of uh, you know, journalism from Miller and Miller? I mean, Wolf. Wolf. Michael Wolf. Okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. Well, <clears throat> Michael Wolf is, Michael Wolf, first of all, is a gossip reporter, okay? He doesn't check things, he doesn't cross-check them, he's a gossip writer. And he brought out a lot of stuff we didn't know, but he doesn't follow standards that I would ever follow. If I tell you I'm not going to quote you, I will go to jail before I'll quote you, okay? Michael, Miller, Michael Wolf will quote you. Now, I'm glad he wrote his book. It's very readable. It confirmed what was in my book, The Making of Donald Trump. It's opened a lot of people's eyes to things. But as a journalist, he's scum. Okay? And I don't want journalists like him. I want people, I travel all over the world devoting my time to teaching other journalists how to do this right. And he's the anathema to that kind of work. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have it. This is a free country and it should be out there. The, the, why do you not get this from the, the reporters who cover the White House, the regular ones? Well, think about that. They have to go back. They're not, Michael Wolf comes in, does his thing, burns his sources and goes. These people have to work there every day. They have to manage their sources and get them to talk. And he didn't tell you a lot you didn't know if you were carefully following the news. So. Well, it was argued, it was, it was argued that those uh, regular reporters, network reporters, only hang around for access and don't pay against deep <clears throat> to find the real stuff. 
except that you're seeing lots of stuff is getting dug out that's pretty deep, although it tends to be much more by print reporters. And understand, lots of people you see on TV as journalists, they couldn't hold a job at the Baltimore Sun in its best years. Okay? They, they are new. In, in England, they're honest about it. They call them news readers or presenters. You know, so a lot of them couldn't report their way out of a wet paper bag. Some of them are very good, but not all of them. <clears throat> and their job isn't to do the heavy work. The heavy work gets done by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, the, Wall, the uh, Washington Post, the, the LA Times, although it's in incredibly deep trouble at the moment, Politico, Bloomberg. They're the ones who do the, the serious work, the Guardian. I'm going to take a little diversion from Trump, although it's relevant to Trump, to tell you a story that should really make you hopping angry about taxes. All, most of you in this room are old enough that this will resonate with you. Imagine that if from the day you went to work till you retired, the federal government had said, all those withholding taxes that we take out of your paycheck, you can keep them, but you can't spend them. You have to invest them. And when you reach retirement age, you're going to pay that money to the government, no interest. Basically, interest-free loans to you of all the taxes withheld from your paychecks, but you can keep the earnings from the investment. You think you'd all be rich? You know, some of you might be thinking about buying a private jet. Well, that is how multinational companies pay their taxes. And when I first reported this in 2002 on the front page of the New York Times, we got letters and calls from prominent people, corporate executives, telling the New York Times, who is this crazy idiot who doesn't know what he's doing writing this story? And then, luckily for me, the Joint Committee on Taxation staff, which had subpoena power, I only had my wits, wrote an 1,800-page report that not only confirmed what I said, but confirmed what the New York Times would not allow me to say because I couldn't prove it to their satisfaction. It turns out Enron stamped documents from its tax department profit center. Companies that siphon profits out of the U.S., companies like Apple, earn a dollar in America, and they take it from their right pocket, and they move it over here to their left pocket, which is somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, or Singapore, or Ireland, or Barbados, or whichever deal works for them, and that dollar is a tax deduction. You imagine if you get a tax deduction for moving your dollar from your right to your left, and that tax deduction is a zero-interest loan. So these companies, they then take this money that they borrowed from the government at zero interest, and they invest it. It's invested, by the way, back here in the U.S. It just has an address that says ownership of this dollar is in the Cayman Islands or Ireland or somewhere else. And <clears throat> many of them use this dollar to go buy federal debt. So that means you're paying taxes to pay interest on the federal debt to pay to Apple so it can delay paying its taxes so it can make a profit off its taxes. So when they passed this bill that said all that money you took out of the country and have been uh, making money off of and which inflation has been eroding the value of it, some of them back to the 80s when this law was changed, 1986, we're now going to discount your 35% tax down to either 15 or 8, roughly 8%. And if you got that deal, all I can say is everybody in this room would have no worries about their finances. 
And the reason you see these big charges being taken, it's an accounting charge. It's what you tell shareholders. It's called book accounting versus tax accounting. Or to put it the way I like to put it and that drives corporate America crazy, you've heard of, you know, like crooks who keep two sets of books. Congress requires corporations to keep two sets of books. So somebody else on Trump? Sir. Oh, that, that, I mean, that's off the topic. I'm sorry. I've, and it's not something I really know a lot about. I try to stick to what I know. There was somebody else like ma'am. Do you have anything you're optimistic about? I'll do that. Go ahead. Do you have anything you're optimistic about? <laughs> well, you know, I'm about the most optimistic person you'll ever meet. I mean, anybody who raises eight children and has five of them at the age of 23 is either, well, I might be crazy, but I think I'm an incurable optimist. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh, Donald Trump, the election of Barack Obama woke up the racists in America. There are a lot of people who will tell you, like Donald, I'm the least racist person you ever met. But the reality is, and, and that's what political, the argument of political correctness is about, right? That's just about I want to call people nasty slurs and have it to be okay and I won't get fired for doing it. Um, we've made great progress. We've made great progress, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. And somewhere between, it looks like from the social sciences data, 25% a quarter to a third of Americans hate the civil rights movement. They don't want to sit next to a Latino on an airplane. They don't want an Asian in the cockpit. And God forbid they don't want a black woman boss. And Donald Trump has given comfort to these people, to these bigots. And he said, it's okay. And they're rallying to him in various ways as a result. Well, so Barack Obama woke up the racists. Donald Trump has woken up principled, moral people, people who are conservatives, who are centrists, who are progressives, who are liberals, who suddenly went, this, this can't be. We can't have this. That's a really good thing. You know, we, we don't have to agree about politics. You can be a conservative, Republican, a liberal, Democrat. I don't care. Just be principled and honest. And that's what I think we're beginning to see. There'll be some overreaction. You know, there'll be the political equivalent of the Nsees Azari, that's how you pronounce his name, date gone bad, compared to Harvey Weinstein. But overall, this has woken up people. Look at the women's marches that have turned out. And the one downside from that is I was watching some video clips somebody sent me of people who've announced they're running for Congress. And then as soon as they get asked a question by a local TV reporter, not exactly generally the sharpest journalists in the box, they fall apart because they're not prepared. They're like Donald. They don't know what they're doing. You've got to make sure the people you run matter. Uh, in the back, ma'am. Yes, can you give your water suggestion to Yeah, no, no. How do we get the White House briefings to be better? Well, the first thing is stop preening for the damn cameras. You know, don't be like these baseball players that you see when I occasionally watch this sport I don't really understand. They walk up and they, they stretch and they swing around, you know, and whatnot. Hit the plate. Hit the ball. You know, ask the question and be direct about it. And I think you get more questions in that way, among other things. And then secondly... Let's spend less time asking those questions and reading the paperwork. Back in 81, when Reagan got elected, I was at the LA Times. I said, make me the fourth White House correspondent. The deal is I can't leave LA. 
I said, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm going to cover the executive orders, the signing orders, the appointment letters. I'm going to cover the paperwork. Nobody covers that. And the editor looked at me and said, that's the most brilliant political news coverage story I've ever heard in my life, and there's not a snowball's chance in hell I'm going to do it. <laughs> but yeah, that would cover the paperwork. Cover the things they do. Sir. So what's the question? Okay, the question, the question is the damage that's being done by the termites. Right. Uh, what happens to the government? Yeah. Okay, so, so what happens to this with this damage? Some of the damage that's being done by the Trump termites, we can fix as soon as he's out of office. But a lot of it we can't. If, in fact, as has been reported but not confirmed, because we can't get to them, they have taken records of polluters. We have millions and millions of records of what's called point source solution. This drain pipe, this smokestack, here's what's happened to it. If they have corrupted those records, we can't ever use them in a court proceeding, certainly not a criminal court proceeding. That's going to take a long time. The trade stuff, uh, my great-grandchildren are going to suffer from that because it's done. The RCEP is out there and the trade deal in Europe and Japan is out there and and we're being left behind, and Donald Trump's certainly not going to make a trade deal with the up-and-coming continent Africa. Um, so that Donald Trump's certainly not going to make a trade deal with Africa. Yes. In other words, the trade deals, the damage from the trade deals is going to continue for decades. That's going to harm. But there are other things we can fix right away as soon as new people in office. We can go back to prosecuting those companies or civilly, seriously finding them who disregard worker safety practices. We can have sleep apnea tests. We can address the student loan problem. There's a lot of things we can fix. But there will be enduring damage. I will be dead, and the damage will not be cleaned up. And just to give you an analogy to this, before the <clears throat> United States of America came into being, and remember, we're the second American republic. The first one failed because it had no power to tax. That's why we created, we created this country specifically to tax ourselves. That's the reason of our Constitution, is to tax ourselves and to regulate commerce. Before us, there were only seven corporations created here in what were the British American colonies. Six of them, one of which still exists, today we would call a charity or a utility. The Boston Waterworks was one of the first six. They were done to pool money to provide things that society needed. One was created in the colony of New Haven. That's how long ago it was. It wasn't even a Connecticut. It was the New Haven colony. It was called by various names, but essentially the London America Trading Company. And its stated purpose was to make money, which is basically the charter of every company in America now, right? We will do various enterprises to make money. It was such a disaster, they had to shut it down within a year, and it took them 10 years to clean it up. So some of the stuff that's happened from Trump is going to take decades to clean up, but some of it we can fix right away. But nothing's going to get fixed as long as he's in the White House. So way in the back there, sir. I'll I'm going to take four more questions after this one. Is that all right, Gene? <laughs> Quick question. Well, does the tax law improve Donald's chances, uh, chances of getting reelected? No, but it improves the chances of the Republicans holding on to Congress. Because next month, a lot of people are, who haven't had a raise in years, 
Remember in 2012, the bottom 90% less than they were making in 67, adjusted for inflation. They're going to suddenly have 10, 20, 30, $40 a week more in their pockets, and it's going to matter to them. It's not going to be until down the road when they find out they're cutting programs and doing other things that you're going to pay for it, pay far more than what you got. You'll know that before the 2020 election. So, um, ma'am. Trump can't fire Mueller. He has to get someone to fire Mueller. And little known fact, uh, during the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, Attorney General Richardson refused to fire Archibald Cox. So did Ruckelshaus, and they resigned. Robert Bork fired him because they had reached an agreement to do so. And so, you know, Bork was always uh, shamed for that, but it was actually a deal they had worked out because they were worried about what would happen if he fired Bork to the Justice Department. But he can't fire him directly. <laughs> he can only fire him indirectly. And if he did, I think you would see finally a few Republican senators say, that's enough. I can't take it anymore. Because one rule about the rule of law in America, you don't get to pick your prosecutor. You know? Uh, you don't get to pick your prosecutor. And the second part of that was, will, he testify? will, will Trump testify? Trump has to testify. You don't have a choice about that. He's going to fight and scream and yell and holler and say he's too busy, he has to testify. No, I think it's very clear that you have to. I think the one unsolved question, unresolved question is, <clears throat> Justice Department policy is you may not indict a sitting president. Nothing in the Constitution prohibits that. But my guess is that what we would see is impeachment of Trump, trial and conviction, removal from office, then followed by prosecution, because it eliminates any doubt about whether you can do it. But the you know, Supreme Court said that uh, President Clinton had to testify in a civil matter, in a civil matter. So the idea that you can withstand a grand jury subpoena by the special prosecutor, not going to fly. Uh, okay, uh, sir. No, Don was never going to resign. That's just not his ego. He, he, Donald believes in his own mind that, of course, he should be president. He's never going to resign. The only way he might resign is if his health is something he's going to die. And even then, I think he'd hang on until he was dead. So, sir. Do you think that, in the end, Trump is simply going to flaunt his power over Mueller by pardoning everyone? Well, Donald Trump tried to get out of this by pardoning everybody. Here's the problem with that strategy. Once you pardon people, they no longer have a Fifth Amendment right against incrimination. Furthermore, it's only a federal pardon. One of the things Mueller did early was signal that he is cooperating with Eric Schneiderman, the Attorney General of New York. Almost all the crimes that Donald Trump has committed are state crimes in New York as well as federal crimes. So there's no path out of, of this way. And furthermore, they've undoubtedly exchanged documents. So if Trump says, well, we're going to go in and destroy all the documents, which ought to have people in the streets, um, that won't matter. Schneiderman's got them. So, ma'am. What will happen to Trump's family? They're involved in this up to their eyeballs. Um, they're not exactly the, the sharpest people you ever saw. And um, I, I actually don't think that they really appreciate how much trouble they're in. They are in very, very deep trouble. I expect some of them are going to prison. When this is all over, 
On the other hand, let me just point out one thing. I covered the, uh, the tax trial of Wesley Snipes, and at that trial they introduced a 600-page manifesto we sent to the government that the federal government is a criminal organization and taxes are voluntary, and the jury acquitted him. So I interviewed jurors afterwards. Why did you acquit him? Well, I'm sure that a man of Mr. Snipes' position would never have broken the law. It was his advisors who tricked him and, and made him do it. And you're going to hear some of that about, about Donald. Right, one last question from Sir. Okay. I'm not, okay, the question is about Trump and Donald's head. I'm not a physician, and I'm not going to get up here and play psychiatrist, but I address this in the book. There is actually a way that you can explain to people Trump's unfitness. It comes right out of the U.S. Army's own materials, and if you read the part of my book about that, you can deal with anybody who says, well, they don't never examine him. They don't know if he's crazy. I mean, Donald's obviously a narcissist. I mean, you don't have to be a doctor to know that, okay? And he has no regard for other people. You exist to Donald, not as a person, but as an object. And it's one of the earliest things I learned about Trump was exactly, and I've met other people like him. He's not, there are other people in public life like him. There are a lot of people in business like him. They're not most people. They're a tiny slice, but they do a lot of damage. <clears throat> but if you read my book, and I came here because I want you to read my book, <laughs> And I want you to, I don't care if you read it at the library, I want you to tell other people about it so they understand what's going on. If you read the book, you'll see there's a whole different way to approach this, and you can't say, well, they didn't examine him. Doesn't matter. It's easy to establish that he's unfit to hold office. So thank you all for coming tonight. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.